If you are ready to change the way people experience the transition to parenthood, you've come to the right place. On this podcast, we interview postpartum professionals, academics and researchers, as well as parents with unique perspectives on postpartum. Whether you've been working with new families for decades or are brand new to postpartum care, we'd love you to join us. I'm your host, Julia Jones. Hello and welcome to Newborn Mothers Podcast. Today I'm talking to Maddie Butler from an organisation called The Parenthood, which is a community working to make Australia the best place in the world to be a parent. They have a really important campaign running at the moment, which really um, got my ears pricked up and resonated with everything that I've kind of learnt um, and heard about what's difficult about becoming a parent today. Um, and it's a campaign for getting better paid parental leave and more universal access to childcare uh, and a properly funded workforce. So Maddie, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, yourself? Sure. Um, thanks for having me on, Julia. So yes, I'm Maddie. I live in Melbourne um, and I have two young kids. They are seven and three. And I am campaign director at The Parenthood. Fantastic. And do you want to, let's rewind a little bit and go back to um, when your first baby was born and, and that was kind of the start of how you how you got to here, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so it's kind of a long story, so rein me in if I go on, if I ramble. Um, we, we love hearing birth stories on this podcast, <laughs> so it's all good. <laughs> I love hearing birth stories too. Um so I am type 1 diabetic and uh, when I fell pregnant, I went through the diabetes clinic at um, a hospital in Sydney. And um, basically, you know, when you're type 1 diabetic, that's considered a high-risk pregnancy. And so I was carefully monitored throughout. Um, I had very good blood sugars. I was very fortunate to be able to um, manage it really well. And um, then it came to crunch time and because I'd been um, diabetic at that point for almost 16 years, um, my endocrinologist highly recommended an induction at 38 weeks and not knowing any better, um, we went along with it. Um, in hindsight, I think 38 weeks was too early, unfortunately. Um, so basically... Yeah, it was a, a fairly long induction process. Um, we went in on, I think, a Wednesday morning and he was born Thursday night. And so they started off with the gel. That took about 12 hours. Um, and then they checked again and my cervix had not budged or anything. Like I was completely closed, cervix right up the back. Um, and so they decided to put in a balloon catheter. I don't know if you um, have ever had that, but that is really painful. Um, I didn't enjoy that at all. And um, so then they left me overnight and the next morning I think the cervix was slightly open or softened and so they broke the waters, which again was quite painful. Um, and up until that point I... So I grew up surrounded by nurses and midwives and had this beautiful idea of having this wonderful birth where I connected with my body and my child and had a, you know, um, medication-free birth aside from my insulin. Um, and I started realising as the induction kept going on and it kept getting more painful that maybe that wasn't going to happen. Um, 
So then they took me through to the birthing room and um, hooked me up to the syntocinum. And that as well is incredibly, incredibly painful. Um, I know some people have had it and it's gone really well, but unfortunately in my case it was quite hellish. Um, and, yeah, they kept increasing the dose. Um, and also... My diabetes was also out of my control, so I was hooked up, I think, to another drip with insulin and um, glucose, and they were kind of controlling me through that as well. So I, I wasn't controlled much. I was, like, I was, I wasn't in control much myself, and I was strapped up to portable monitors as well. So they were constantly monitoring the baby's heart, um, heart rate, and. Yeah, so this intercinin kept being increased and um, I was just in more and more pain and starting to kind of scream the room down to the point where other people were popping their heads in and asking, is everything okay in here? Um, my mum and my partner who were both in the room kept excusing themselves to go to the toilet and cry, I found out later, because I was just, I was like, the girl in the exorcist just contorting my body and screaming and it was horrible and it, there was no break in between contractions so eventually I asked for the epidural um so they popped that in and then everything got really calm and it felt all good again and then all of a sudden the room was filled with people baby's heart rate was dropping way too low um and they had to get him out straight away. They were talking about doing a cesarean, but unfortunately, I think all the theatres were full at that point. So the obstetrician on call came in um, and she was like, it's all good. I can deliver via forceps. Um, and, yeah, she pulled him out and he, I think they needed to slap him a little bit, get him breathing. He was all fine. He was beautiful. Um passed all these scores and everything everything was great um but yeah then they turned to me and were like ah, oh, so you've had a fourth degree tear which means you've kind of torn everywhere and we're going to need to take you through to theater when one opens up um so yeah so that was kind of <laughs> the whole birth story very full-on and not not an ideal way to become a mother no, <laughs> definitely not. Yeah, we just had Hannah Darlin on the podcast a couple of episodes ago and she's just completed a 16-year study of nearly 500,000 births on um, studying inductions, um, whether they're medically necessary anyway. And a lot of what you're talking about really, um, yeah, is a lot related to what her work's uh, about. Mm. And so... You know, how, how did that set you up? What was your, because that was still only the beginning, yeah? I think you had a, a hemorrhage, didn't you? Yeah, so I think I lost about a litre of blood. I remember they were kind of quite shocked um, because I needed three blood transfusions in the end and they were saying, I, I think they said you didn't lose that much. Yeah, a leader so to have that many blood transfusions. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I think I, yeah, you know, I was kind of just a, a zombie afterward. Yeah. Um, I was in hospital. So he was born Thursday night. I was in hospital the night before that night, and then three nights afterwards. 
Um, yeah, and so some people can lose a litre of blood and not need a transfusion yeah. at all, but obviously your body was just completely in shock. Yeah, and it took me a really long time to realise that because kind of every, I think I was just so drained that every week I remember thinking, oh, I'm finally back to normal, I feel normal, and then the next week I'd think that again and realise, oh, it's just that I felt incrementally better and that just felt so much better because I was so low. Mm, you were starting from such a low point, yeah. 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 And so how was your mother experience then? Like, you know, like all of that getting to know your baby and mm. um, that time of kind of healing and resting and bonding, learning to breastfeed, all of that stuff that those early weeks is about, how has that impacted? Well, Look, I was really fortunate in that um, my partner was so supportive. So he works as a freelancer and he basically did all of the parenting except breastfeeding. So he picked baby up, changed nappies, did all of that, um, which really helped, I think, had he had to work a nine-to-five job somewhere else, I would have really struggled. Um, And... I do, looking back on it, I think that just my love for having a baby really saved me, you know, those beautiful hormones that you get, like mm-hmm. that that helped me through. However, breastfeeding was really hard. So um, I can't remember how long into my breastfeeding journey we were, but, um, yeah, he chomped down on a nerve <laughs> and, it really, really hurt and I couldn't feed from that side anymore. And so I had to feed from the other side and it just it took a few weeks, I think, to get better and I had to prop him up, like kind of sit him up instead of having him sideways because it was just too painful. Um, so that was a bit of a struggle as well, but I was so determined to breastfeed that I just was not going to... Um, give up on that so I kind of just I pumped I think for a a few days as well and fed him via bottle and then um, then slowly got him back on the breast yeah that determination it's something we call a confident commitment and it's one of the best indicators of of breastfeeding so Mm -hmm. you know breastfeeding is hard and and so your your determination is probably really what made the, the difference um, so you had a very different experience with your second um, baby. Loving this podcast? Check out our books at newbornmothers.com. Nourishing Newborn Mothers is a recipe book to nourish your mind, body and soul after childbirth. And my second book, Newborn Mothers, was a bestseller. I know, I can't believe it either. It's about baby brain, village building and how to find happiness in 21st century parenting. You can get the first chapter free of both books at newbornmothers.com slash books. I did. So basically we're in a different state and I don't think we could have done it again without being in a different state. Um, I also had a continuous glucose monitor to help with my diabetes. So that as well just meant there would be quite a... um, a bit of reduced stress, I guess, um, during that pregnancy. Sorry, so were you saying because of the difference between health, in healthcare systems between New South Wales and Victoria that it was a different experience? 
No, oh, I think it's more because of the healthcare professionals. I think overall. You just found the right people the second yeah, time around. Totally. Yeah, I see. And I think I could have stumbled um, onto the wrong people again this time, and I think I almost did. So basically um, I, when I started at the hospital um, here, I was given an endocrinologist and a certain obstetrician, and that obstetrician um, basically read my file and then straight away said, okay, you've had a fourth degree tear. I'm putting you down for a caesarean. Now, I completely expected to have a caesarean, but I wanted to, you know, have a discussion and I wanted to talk about what had happened. And, yeah, so I was just kind of a bit shocked. I don't think we um, had the right connection. And so things changed and then I had a different obstetrician and what he first said was, um, oh, I've read your file tell me your story. What do you want to do? And I was like, wait, hang on, don't I have to have a cesarean? He was like, well, hang on, there's pros and cons to a cesarean and to a vaginal birth. Like we've got to talk it all through. You need to know what you're up against and what you're going to go through. Um, And, you know, he pointed out really fairly, I think, that having another, like having a cesarean doesn't mean that I, because I'd healed so well from the fourth degree tear, a cesarean wouldn't necessarily mean I wouldn't have complications later on in life. Um, yeah, it just comes with a different set of complications. <laughs> yeah, and but I mean, and he said that even women in their fifties who have never had um, been pregnant or never had a birth in any way, um, that they also can have incontinence problems. So that you can't just, you can't necessarily pinpoint to certain things. Um, so he was really reassuring and very just, he really educated me. And so he um, also helped me develop a, um, a birth plan. So it was <laughs> four pages long, which is probably quite excessive. But basically mm-hmm. I ran through, because I knew I was probably going to have another induction. Um, it ran through every single induction stage and said things like, you know, if you, if we're getting to the point of syntocinin, I would much prefer a cesarean and just those kinds of things. Mm. Of course, the birth plan ultimately said the baby's life is most important. So do whatever needs to be done um, to get the baby out safely. But if, if there is time, these are certain things I'd prefer to do. So um, we worked on that together um, and he and I really talked about, yeah, all the different outcomes that were possible um, and what I really wanted to do. And because I really did actually want to try another vaginal birth, I was also, I'd found a support group on Facebook. Um, and I really recommend that for people. If you've been through something, if you can find a support group or start one, if there isn't one, it's just so reassuring to hear from other people. And about maybe a third of the women in that group had gone on to have vaginal births and maybe 95% of those births had gone well, like they hadn't had another fourth degree tear. And was Um, this specifically, it was a fourth degree tear support group or a diabetes support group? Third and fourth degree. Third and fourth, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, So I was really looking for the stories as well that were about fourth degree tears. Mm. Um, But, yeah, so that kind of, um, I don't know, I think that pushed me a bit to be like, can I get that healing unmedicated birth that mm. I always dreamed of? 
Um, and my endocrinologist as well was just so supportive and she and I talked about whether we could push to 39 weeks for an induction rather than 38. And she, I think, <laughs> was quite nervous about going to 39 and would have preferred 38, but she she heard me and she completely understood where I was coming from and said, yeah, let's, let's do 39 weeks. Um, and so, yeah, we went in. Uh, 39 and a half weeks um, and they put the gel in again as with the last time and um, kind of left me to my own devices and then I think about six hours later they were like oh we should take you to the birth ward but they put me in an assessment room rather than the birthing room because the hospital was so packed they were just uh-huh. that day um, so in the assessment room, I think we hung out for another six hours or so, and then someone, an obstetrician, came in and said, "No one's checked you, so we don't. Even, we're all assuming you'll just go through to a birth room and just give birth magically, but you know, where are you at?" So I was like, "Okay, check me," and she checked me, and she was like, "I'm really sorry, but you're totally closed up. Yeah, cervix up the back again, the same drama," and I was starting to freak out. Um, so we agreed that I'd have another dose of the gel and then in the morning reassess. And then I was starting to say, can I just have a cesarean now? You know, I was totally freaking out. I think I may have had PTSD after the first birth. Um, mm-hmm. my, they wanted my partner to go home and for me to go into a shared room. And I was just like, um, I'm really sorry, but I'm just not coping. Like I have to stay with him. Um, and I'm, they basically were like, okay, you can all, you can both just stay in the assessment room. And I'm so glad they did that because about 15 minutes later, I was lying down. I was like, I can't lie down anymore. I've got to get up, move around the room. And I just started like breathing really heavily. And I was like, I think these are real contractions. <laughs> this is what it's meant to feel like. Yeah. And it felt like, I mean, I know everyone has a different experience, but it felt amazing. I felt so good. And I was just breathing through it. And like, you know, when you just give in to your body and let it go. And I just felt like that. And then my partner started timing them. All of a sudden, we're at, you know, I think they were one minute apart. And so eventually the midwife comes in, my waters have broken on their own. We go through to the birthing room, which conveniently had opened up right next door. Um, And all of a sudden, I think it was that, you know, ring of fire thing. I was screaming, throwing my clothes off, getting up on the couch and like starting to just lose it. And, you know, this is another point where it's just so important to have the right support people. My midwife had clearly read the birth plan and so she grabbed me calmed me down and she was like you want to go on the bed and on your side because that's what you've written in your birth plan because I'd done research and a lot of people had said that birthing on your side with one leg up can help reduce the risk of retearing um so and I was just freaking out because I was like no 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 that's too painful and she was like no the baby's coming I can see the baby get on the bed and I was like all right we get on the bed she's like I'll go get warm compresses which was another thing I'd asked for in the birth plan and then I was just kind of like doing some weird squawking or something at that point and she was like breathe you want to breathe and so you know I was like oh that's right I'm gonna breathe and seriously like two contractions later baby was out right on mm. 
and didn't tear, just um, I had had an episiotomy because she was coming out so quickly, the obstetrician wanted that. And in hindsight, I probably would have said no, but because it was just so quick, she was born in 68 minutes. Um, we just we just went with it all. And, um, yeah, the, the one thing I remember thinking afterwards was I got up to walk to the toilet and I was like, I can walk. I can move around, I can I can go to the toilet, I can actually still function as a human. And, you know, I feel like me. And, yeah, it was just the most beautiful experience. And I think if I hadn't had that experience, I would be a shell of a person today because of that first experience, which mm. was quite traumatic. Mm, and it, yeah, and it, I mean, you would have, I guess, you could have eventually healed, but it would take a lot, a lot longer. And and you could have been had it had compounded trauma if a sim- you'd had a similar experience the second mm. time. You know, you could have made it worse. So, yeah, that's very fortunate and a really beautiful story. And and how did that then impact upon that second postpartum experience? It was like a walk in the park, honestly. Um, I remember we so. She was born right after midnight. So we stayed that night, one night afterwards, and then um, went home because, you know, we had a four-year-old at home as well we wanted to get back to. But um, I think the day after we got home, we went to a cafe with her. Um, We hung out with people. We did things. I started working again when she was five months old or so, like just things that, were not even possible first time around. Mm. Yeah, that's great. That's beautiful to hear. So how did you get from there then to moving into being a community organiser and more of an an activist kind of a role? Yeah, well, so I think what those experiences taught me was the importance of really listening to people, especially to women, um, and to educating and empowering people and letting people become their own advocates. And so that kind of drew me to campaigning because that's what that and community organising is all about, like getting people motivated to um, work on issues that are important to them. Because if I hadn't had those health professionals second time around who listened to me and supported me, I think I would have just had a completely different experience um, so yeah, those though that's just become really important to me. Um, so then yes. I got the climate action and but always with parents. I love working with parents and now um, working with the parenthood. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so you personally having that experience of what it's like to have you know good quality support that has evidence-based care but also takes into account your feelings and your experiences mm-hmm. and your mental health and all of those kind of things. Um, and that difference that it made for you. So tell us a little bit about your campaign or, or, or maybe to start with the report that, that led to this campaign. Yeah, so end of last year, this was before I was working at the Parenthood, um, we commissioned a report on making Australia the best place in the world to be a parent. Um, And we found there are four things which will really improve the lives of parents in Australia. So that's um, universal health and wellbeing support, 
um, a paid parental leave scheme that provides one year of paid leave to be shared between parents, um, universal access to early childhood education and care, and flexible and supportive workplaces. Yeah, great. That's awesome. Mm. So you've dropped a couple of them from your your campaign. You you haven't included universal health and and you haven't included flexible and supportive workplaces. So why is that? Yeah, well, these are kind of the, this is the first step campaign. So we want to campaign around paid parental leave, early childhood education and care, and also outside school hours care. And our thinking is that Firstly, if we can secure those policy changes, that then we, we're at the table and we can start talking about other policy changes as well. But also that there's, there needs to be a cultural shift. So with flexible workplaces, we need employers and just everyone to understand that parents can't always work nine to five, um, childcare, after school care, like those things help, but it's not, it's not always accessible or available and we really need to have a better understanding of working parents' lives. Um, and then also with health and wellbeing support, if we can start really talking about what universal access to early childhood education and care looks like and expand the paid parental leave, what they look like, um, I think we can also start the conversation around health as well for parents. Yeah, I like it. I think the other thing about this is if we have better access to paid parental leave and, and childcare, what that also does is just free up parents' energy to actually get behind a campaign too because I think one of the reasons this issue never goes anywhere is everyone who's got children under five is so burnt out that <laughs> we don't really have energy spare to, like, meet with our MPs or start petitions, you know. it's We're um, all exhausted. I know, yeah, which is why we try and make the campaign, like, a lot of the asks we have of parents are very either bite-sized or we've just got all the resources. So if you want to meet with your MP, we've got the template for contacting them. We've got all the instructions on how to go through it and that kind of stuff. Um, because, you know, I'm a parent of young kids. I know how exhausting it is. And, yeah, it can be really hard to get involved. Yeah, cool. I also really love that you've got this emphasis on, on parents' generally and I also really like rather than just mothers mm. and I also really really love that you're also really taking care of um of early childhood educators as well and child carers because um you know if there's one thing we've really seen in the pandemic it's that these roles are absolutely essential completely undervalued um, and that the economy stops when we don't have adequate care you know it's not it's not a nice to have it's a need to have um awesome so what can people do your website is theparenthood.org.au we'll pop that link up in the show notes so there's a petition there's a, a kit to meet with an mp yeah what what are kind of people's next steps yeah, so basically if people can sign the petition and share it, that would be brilliant. Once you sign the petition, you should get an email with a link to some resources on sharing. We've got templates and ideas in there um, and also some social tiles if people want to use them. Um, and then we also have under our join tab on the website a volunteer page where people can then get in touch if they want to do more. So that's where if you want to um, meet with your MP or share your story or um, do some local media, 
then we can reach out. And if there are, if people have other ideas as well about how they want to get involved, we always love to hear them. Um, but what I can suggest to people is also just follow us on our socials because we always have um, info on there about what we're doing and what we're up to and things people can do. That's awesome. I have one last question for you. Mm. How is the Parenthood funded? Um, so we are funded by a few different organisations. Um, so that's mostly what it is as well as some philanthropy. But we also uh, do get some donations from parents and carers coming in. So if anyone wants to donate, we've got that on our website and that would always be brilliant. Yeah, because you've only got two employees, is that right? There's three of us, yes. Three. We're a small team. And, and, pa- and part-time, part-time, I imagine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I know that these organisations usually run on a shoestring budget and people are often quite happy to give to a cause but not to give to the administrative costs Mm. of actually running a campaign and things. So I think it's really important that we highlight, um, you know, that you deserve to get paid for this work and um, it's important that we do that. Otherwise it wouldn't happen. So that's great. I think that's all my questions. Do you have anything you want to leave us with? Um, Well, yeah, just... The importance of advocating for yourself, I think. If you're um, pregnant and you know what kind of birth you want to have or you don't, start doing some research, connect with people um, and, yeah, think about what you want and how you might be able to get it. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks so much. That was really lovely to talk to you, Maddie. Great. Thanks, Julia, for having me on. Here at Newborn Mothers, we believe that every family has the right to high-quality postpartum care. If you want to join us, learn more at newbornmothers.com. And if you like this podcast, we'd really love you to leave us a five-star review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.